For Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I'm Nick Hennon, and this is SciVibe. This has been a year of unimaginable weirdness and heartbreak, but it has also been a year that showed us the best of who we are and who we can be, and the good work and scientific discovery and research that occurred inside the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory had the potential to inspire us all. This show is dedicated to some of our best stories of 2020. Science. Technology. Scientific discovery. SciVibe. Year in Review. Earlier this year, we had a chance to talk to Ted Boyer, a world-renowned nuclear physicist who spent much of his career developing a new way to track a radioactive gas known as radio xenon. I'm Ted Boyer. I am a laboratory fellow at... Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and I do research and development on detecting radioactive atoms from nuclear explosions. This capability helps scientists track nuclear explosions anywhere on Earth. How is it done? Here's Ted explaining the process of tracking radio xenon. Perhaps you're opening a bottle of champagne in Kansas, and there's CO2 and the cork pops and there's a small amount of CO2 that's released when you open champagne. Now, that's about the same amount of xenon that's created in a smallish nuclear explosion. Now, envision that amount of CO2, or in our case, radioactive xenon, traveling from Kansas to New York City. And so we're detecting about the number of atoms that would be present in that far of a transit. So imagine, in other words, detecting the amount of CO2 from a champagne bottle transported from Kansas to New York City. So it's only a few thousand atoms that we detect typically every day. Man, that is super interesting work. And how did we know what we were getting? There's radioactive xenon in the air from a number of different processes. For example, from nuclear power generation, medical isotope production and other things also create radioactive xenon. So it creates, let's say, a fog of radioactive xenon in the atmosphere. And so now our problem becomes If there's this other radioactive xenon out there, how do we tell that what we're detecting isn't, in fact, from a peaceful thing such as production of nuclear power? We develop things such as a technology called STACS, which is actually a stack monitor, uh, where you could put a nuclear detector at the location where radioactive xenon is emitted on a voluntary basis, and we can use that with some sophisticated models to know when that is what we detected versus a nuclear test. Thanks, Ted. Such interesting perspective. I often wonder how scientists become inspired. How do they determine which work to do next? Let's move into a 2020 climate story under that lens as we learn about PNNL atmospheric scientist Wing Chen. Some of the largest masses of snow and ice on the planet are melting. Wing and his team discovered that dust plays a larger role in that snowmelt and high altitude in the Himalayas than previously thought. Yeah, dust itself sounds like not really relevant to the snow melting. However, because dust mixed with snow, which makes the snow surface dark, absorbing more sunlight, absorbing more energy, which create a favorable condition, those energy will be used to accelerating snow melting. That's how it works. It's a fascinating breakthrough. And also interesting is how he came to be inspired to study this. So many years ago, our family had a vacation in uh, Banff National Park in Canada. We visited the Columbia Icefield Glacier and we could uh, walk on the glacier. It's, it's an unforgettable experience. So it's my first time 
so closely to observe the glacier. I could see many details. The glacier is not as white as we see from very far distance. I could see some place very dirty, many black stuff, and I could see the、uh, melting water on the ice. This inspired me. How about for those large glacier? Canada is a very clean country. How about those more polluted region like、uh, Himalayas? I remember the first time I had a chance to see the Rocky Mountains in the U.S., and it was actually the first time that I had witnessed the snow cap and the melting glaciers in Glacier National Park as well. And I think one of the things that strikes my memory the most is when you are up close to that. There is so much dirt and dust, and you don't think of that in your head when you see the textbook explanation of glaciers. But when you witness it firsthand, and it's in front of you, and you see that, it's striking, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that's why sometimes in some summertime or spring break, I like to bring my kids go outside to see the nature, which may inspire their, you know, the future career, what they want to do. That's really important to me. Wow, that's great! Thanks, Wing, and thanks for updating us on one of our top stories for 2020. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Nick. I think the inspiration behind the science is important to all of us, and this next story is no exception. In August of this year, we talked to Brent Van Devender, a physicist at PNNL who studies neutrinos. I'm Brent Van Devender. I'm a nuclear physicist at PNNL. I'm, I'm our program manager for nuclear physics research. Brent and his MIT colleagues stumbled on a pretty amazing discovery: how quantum computing decoherence occurs with environmental radiation interference. All I really needed was a low noise microwave amplifier to do my neutrino experiment. One of my colleagues, who I who I work on that with, Joe Formaggio at MIT, approached one of his colleagues on the MIT faculty, who he knew had amplifiers that might work for us. Discovery by accident, in this case, like so many others, is a powerful experience. And this story reminds us how areas of science that seem disconnected can have unexpected connections. And that was a total surprise to us, and we really discovered it quite by accident. This guy, that's Will Oliver at MIT. Tells Joe, you know, I use these amplifiers to read out qubits. The amplifiers work just fine, but you know, there's something with the qubits. They don't work as well as theory predicts they should. We do know what it is. There are way too many what we call quasi particles. Those are those free electrons, and, and we don't know why they're there. There, there. there is a good theory of how superconducting devices like these work. It predicts some, you know, vanishingly small number of free electrons in a superconductor, and there are like millions of times more than that, and that's a mystery. It is not known where those come from. They exist everywhere. You know, all devices doesn't matter who is looking, who's doing the experiment, what kind of devices. It's always there. A lot of things have been ruled out, and what Will Oliver then laid on Joe is that. One of the only things that's not definitively ruled out is that it's just like the natural radiation in the environment is breaking up the charge-carrying pairs in superconductors and making these free electrons. And now that's fortuitous because dealing with radiation in the environment in super sensitive experiments to measure like dark matter in neutrinos is like that's that's what we do. We know how to deal with that and do those experiments and then control that radiation if that turns out really to be the problem. You know, some of the best scientific experiments and、uh, discoveries and breakthroughs occur by accident, right? I mean, in the past, we've read a lot about how this has happened sort of accidentally. That's what I think. I mean, I, I was not thinking about qubits. I don't think the qubit people at MIT were thinking about 
at least not deeply about neutrinos and dark matter. It was really that chance conversation. Wow, that's so cool. So what is a qubit, you know, for someone who, say, doesn't understand quantum computing? Okay, so so in a, in a classical computer, a bit, you know what a bit is, right? A yeah. bit, a bit is, is a basically a transistor state, and it's either on or off. It's zero or one. That's the basis of classical computing. And a quantum computer, a qubit, that's a quantum bit, it has two states, zero or one. But it has this special property that it can be in either of those states, zero and one, but it can also be in a mixture of those two states at the same time. Whoa. And that's a really special property. And that's where quantum computers drive their power. Whereas a classical bit has just the two states, quantum bit really has a much larger number of states that it can represent because it can appear in that mixture of zero and one. Okay, I got a tough one for you. How is quantum computing different from how we do things now? I mean, that's a hard question. It, it comes down to the, the nature of the algorithms you can execute. Fundamentally, what a classical computer does is they can look at two bits and, and decide whether they're the same or add them together or something like that. There's much more you can do with bits quantum bits, qubits, that can be in these mixed states. And also you can manipulate an additional property where two qubits can be entangled with each other, where, you know, the state of one bit is completely dependent on the state of one of its neighbor bits. That does not exist in classical computing. And the, the types of algorithms you can design take advantage of those additional quantum properties. That's where the power comes from. Ah, okay. There are some calculations which a quantum computer really doesn't help you with. But there are a few algorithms that just can't be done classically, but at least in theory could be done on a quantum computer. The classic example is, uh, it's called Shor's algorithm. It can factorize huge numbers, and it's the basis of cryptography, basically. So classical cryptography has to do with encrypting your message using giant numbers that a classical computer cannot factorize within the age of the universe, whereas a quantum computer with enough qubits could do it rather quickly. I got it. That's really awesome. So how did you come to this discovery? So in that original conversation with Will Oliver, he already had the hypothesis that this was the source. What we had to do, though, was design a carefully controlled experiment. And so we took some quantum devices, some qubits that Will Oliver has in his lab. We operated them like normal with one major exception. We took a small piece of copper and activated it to make it radioactive in the research reactor at MIT and placed that inside the refrigerator with, with the devices such that we could irradiate them. And what we did was we operated the qubits like normal and, and, and measured their properties as this radioactive copper decayed away over the course of a few days. And so we started an experiment with elevated radiation. And over the course of a few days, it, it, that radiation decayed back to like natural ambient radiation levels. And we were able to see the devices Initially, they were almost dysfunctional. They, they, they barely worked, and then they slowly came back to normal. That is really amazing research. Thanks, Brent, for getting us up to date on another one of the top stories for 2020. Science. Technology. Scientific discovery. Year in Review. Well, this has been a lot of fun looking back at just three of the top stories for 2020. We're looking forward to 2021 and a brand new year of scientific discovery, innovation, and groundbreaking research. Thanks for taking the time to look back with us. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, be sure to share and subscribe.